Criminal-Minded Media listeners, welcome to a bonus episode of The Syndicate. We plan on releasing a few of these bonus episodes and a season two, so please check your Syndicate podcast feed. In this interview, we sit down with Marley Fogelsong, a neighbor to the Dunlaps, who actually witnessed the disputed cash drop that was used for the defense of John Adamson. Why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about who Marley Fogelsong was in 1976? Okay, well, I was a, uh, I'd gotten out of the service a few years before, out of the Marine Corps, and I was uh, working as an equipment operator for a construction company. And uh, in 1976, I was 27 years old. Let's start with the events of the morning of June 12th, 1976, and how you witnessed it and what you witnessed. Okay. I lived at, uh, Max Dunlap lived at, I believe, 1015 East Bethany Home Road, and I rented the house next door to him. I was renting it. And on that morning, it was early in the morning on June 12th, I was going to work. I was walking over towards my pickup, which was right next door to Max's, and a man uh, got my attention. He had pulled up in a... Max has a... There's a horseshoe drive where his mother lives, and then Max lives in the other house with a half-moon drive, and he pulled into the area closer to the grandmother's but was walking toward Max's house, and he got my attention thinking that I might be Max. Uh, I said no. And then about that time, Max is going because he goes to work too at the time. I okay. The guy had a paper bag, a grocery bag. And in my deposition in both the trials, I told him it was a very wrinkled bag. I remember that vividly. And I said, no, there is Max. And I pointed over to where Max was coming out the door. And he walked over to Max. I went on to my truck. And that was uh, what I witnessed on that morning. I couldn't see his license plate from where I was because he's to the east of me is where he parked his car by Max's mother's horseshoe drive. But I can't describe him. And he was a man wearing khaki pants. He had a white T-shirt on. And he had not long hair, but... uh, semi but medium hair length and it was uh, blondish or not blondish sandy colored and a blonde brown hair and that was uh, what I witnessed and uh, when I was I never paid much attention to it then uh, later on it came out in the paper and uh, I was reading the paper with Sandy Max's daughter who I'm married to now and Sandy's mother, Barbara. They were reading the paper and they said, hey, there's a man that Max said came to the house and and uh, brought a bag that had money in it. And I said, hey, I remember that guy. I didn't know him. I don't think Max knew him either. But anyway, he. Uh, I said, well, I remember seeing that guy. And so then 
it all came out. Yeah, I remember that day when he came. That's how that transpired. Wow, I wasn't aware that you actually interacted with this gentleman as well. Well, we didn't speak much, but he said he's, he looked at me and he said, Max, because our houses were very close to each other when mm -hmm. I was renting. And as a matter of fact, Max owned that, a bunch of buildings over there. And this house is right within spitting distance almost of where Max's front door is to his house to where my truck was parked. Later on, they hypnotized me. They sent me to, I think, either UCLA or USC. And I flew over with John Sullivan and they hypnotized me. That was a friend of Max's. And I described, I guess, everything in that hypnosis thing the same way I saw it. But I couldn't, I could tell the car, it was a sedan, uh, I believe it was a four-door. And that was about it as far as the hypnotist went. Then they gave me a lie detector test, which I passed. And Don Devereaux and Lake Headley were both witnesses. They gave me the lie detector test, actually. Oh, and so uh, they, they approached you. They, they, that was probably what, starting around 78 or 79 when uh, Lake was hired by the the uh, Max Dunlap group to uh, take a look at, at the facts of the case, correct? Yes, and they had a lie detector uh, machine and they gave me a lie detector test. And then I ended up testifying in both the trials over that. And there were there were other things that happened in regard to Max. He was, uh, he was in solitary confinement at the time in the county jail and he had uh, communicated with a, a guy that used to bring his food, a, a trustee. And he said, hey, I've got a future son-in-law that, that, you know, because the guy needed a job, I guess. He was getting out of prison and of the county as a trustee. And so he sent this man over to where I worked and uh, we hired him. I asked my boss, hey, here's a guy you could maybe he could. My boss had a nursery along with the grading business. And he said, well, maybe, you know, he, Max told this guy to come see me. Mm -hmm. So he did. We got him a job at the nursery. So he worked there a few months and, and then they didn't need him anymore or something. He was like a temporary, but he was very polite, nice. And he thanked me for getting him a job. And I never saw him because I worked in the other department of the business, the, the grading and excavating business. But I'd see him occasionally. Anyway, I got his last check from Bud. They laid him off. And so I gave it to him. He thanked me. And then he ended up going back to Chicago and he killed two people. Uh, I think it was execution style. And then the court... Uh, not the court, but the newspaper, the Arizona Republic, came out with an article and it said that Max Dunlap funneled money to his son-in-law, Marley Fogelsong, to pay this guy. Then the guy went and killed, I guess. Oh, my God. Yes. And, and this is just totally untrue. And it was proven untrue. But I had to go to court over that. And a bunch of the greater guys that worked with me had operators had to go to court. They were and trying to throw anything at the wall that, that could stick basically against Max Dunlap at the time. That's exactly true. And that's what that was. And it was all bogus and a farce and it was proved out. Another thing, and I'll throw this in and it didn't concern me, but during that trial, 
Judge Thompson's daughter committed suicide during the first trial. Mm -hmm. And she lived in Tucson, committed suicide, and then the paper came out. I don't think, I don't know if the court was involved in this, but the paper came out with an article saying that they thought that maybe Max had ordered a hit on Judge Thompson's daughter. Oh my God. And he, Max was in solitary confine, confinement at the time. But anyway, and wow. that, just, that just got brushed over and just like nothing. But as far as defamation of a character, my God. Oh, they assassinated his character from the jump, yeah. Yeah. Wow. But anyway, basically that's my uh, my story. Okay. I did describe the man in detail. I did it in both depositions. I was always ready to take any kind. If they want to give me one, the police, give me a lie detector test, go ahead. I don't care. And I'm glad you brought up the police because did you ever approach the police with this information? Did they ever come and speak to you or was this uh, something that they almost didn't want to know about? I, I know in speaking with Don Devereaux, um, he told me about uh, an incident with a police officer who witnessed the same thing you did, who basically left town in the middle of the night with his family because of what he had witnessed. Did the police just try to brush everything you'd witnessed under the rug? Pretty much, although there was some construction work going on on, uh, I think Max owned several acres were behind the house where I lived. And and I rented it from him and I paid him $165 a month, just like clockwork, the time I lived there. And, and uh, they had someone back there and the police were back there. They were watching his house from every angle they could. And uh, anyway, all my guns were stolen and you know i got robbed and it was just just stuff like that beyond coincidence some of this yeah. stuff but the police i never no i never i talked to them in court or they they deposed me of course when i went down to the lawyer's office and they had the you know the people there mm -hmm. the prosecutor and stuff and they deposed me uh, a couple times and uh that was it though they never uh, they had their they had their theory and they didn't want anything that was going to uh, uh, potentially cause problems for their theory is my that's yeah, my opinion that you're exactly right they didn't want to change the theory that was given to them by well you know all that yeah and, and so yeah. they just wanted to go with that yeah and incredible now something else and I, I know you know Phoenix PD had their motives for what they were doing but with, yes. with what you provided, especially the fact you testified in court in both trials, outside yes. of Don Devro, were you ever approached by anybody from the local media, namely the Arizona Republic, to talk about what you'd witnessed? Never. <laughs> so the no. only th time they ever printed your name in the newspaper was when they tried to connect it to the, the ex-con that, uh, that you guys had given a job. That I hired, yes. That's right. I mean, that's the only time. And yet they were watching our crews. Uh, we know that for a fact. Uh, my my boss's crews, you know, mm -hmm. they were watching us on the jobs. I don't know why, for whatever reason, undercover policemen. And uh, they seemed to know uh, quite a bit about me. But... But they anyway, never came to get your side of the story. They about never what you came and, and talked to me personally, no. Wow. No. 
No. You know, yeah. one or two more questions, because I told you I'd only keep you about 20 minutes. But, uh, you know, around this time, so the morning that you witnessed the money drop, that had Max's name already begun to surface locally? Uh, were you aware of... Oh, yes. Yeah, yes, okay. I was. And were you aware of a police presence in your neighborhood at that time? Uh, yes, I was. Uh, I was walking out back of the house, and I there were, well, on occasion, there'd be one or two back there that were plain clothesmen. Because, uh, like I say, Max lived on, on his, behind his house. There was like uh, maybe five acres or something. Mm-hmm. And then behind where I lived at the school, I think it was five or six, maybe seven acres. And there was old buildings there. I'd walk around sometimes out back. And uh, oh, more than once, I'd say maybe three times, I'd come across, a, there's a guy there. What's he doing there? And then I'd ask him and they'd say, well, we're, you know, we're doing a stakeout for drugs or whatever they're, you know, some yeah. baloney line. Yeah. And, uh, but they were, they weren't just vagrants or, you know, that's what I was looking for. But right. No, they were not. My understanding from speaking with Don Devereaux and, and Jana Bombersbox, another journalist, a local journalist who's kind of helped us along in this project. And it sounds like I would say within four days of the bomb going off that uh, they had Max under 24 hour surveillance, which makes the fact that they alleged that they dispute the money drop when we kind of know that there was a police car parked basically at the end of the Dunlap driveway, uh, even more far fetched. Well, actually, what I do know for a fact is they had like a, uh, oh, like a, some kind of a trailer thing that they have, uh, oh, APS has them, I think, and uh, could have been Salt River Project. I, I'm not sure of that now, but it was parked at the, grand, at the grandmother, uh, Max's mother's driveway off to the side. You could still get around it. She had like an acre out front. Her house sat kind of further back right out towards the front where they could see everything there was a van parked there for i can't even remember how long and it was a and not a van it was more of a trailer but i guarantee you there were people in there you know it's just i work construction so i know difference between you know hey there's not a pile of lumber on that thing or bricks or blocks but no it's Something's inside there. Maybe it's a big generator on the outside, but inside there's something. Right. It's too big for a generator. Why would it be sitting there? Wow. Now that I think of it, I should have just backed up and hooked up to it and hauled it away. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Before I let you go, could you kind of, sure. obviously you're now married to, to uh, uh, Max Sandy. Dunlap's daughter, Sandra. right? Sandy, but, yeah. But could you kind of give me an idea? I'm assuming at the time you were very, uh, you were dating and obviously very close with the family. What yeah. that was like to watch that family go through what they went through. It, it's a horror story. It's 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 just horrible what that family went through, and it caused lots of problems. I the boys, I did take them to a T-ball and I got them into uh, Cub Scouts. They're young, but the girls, uh, the mental trauma they went through, and seeing their dad arrested at their home. It was, it was terrible. It was terrible. It still affects my wife to this day, and I've been married to her for 45 years. 
they're strong, but they've all been affected by it. They really have. And that uh, the boys being so young like that, and they were, and all the girls who used to, Max would drive up, someone would graduate from, Sandy graduated from college. He took the whole family up there. Yeah. Took everyone. It was, you know, just, uh, he, they were going on vacations. They would take them on vacations. Even when I was, uh, when he got out for those years, I would fly over to California and get our hotel for Sandy and me, and we would party with the family, you yeah. know. A very, very close, a classy family. Very classy, if I can say anything. They all suffer from this to this day, every one of them. Let me let me yeah. leave you with, with one last question, and I know sure. listeners, those who will poo-poo our theory, and like the Arizona Republic said, we're giving oxygen to conspiracy theories uh, not too long ago. But in all your time around Max, is there even a remote 0.1% chance in your mind that the Max Dunlap you knew so well was capable of something like this? Absolutely not. He was a family man. He, he, he would come back from being out of town or wherever and he would just the whole family didn't stay home on Sundays, I remember, because that was like family day. And uh, no, he, did, he didn't have that in him to do that. And especially, now I look back and think if Kemp, and I knew Kemper Marley, I did some jobs for him with mm -hmm. equipment, you know. I, I bartended at a couple of his Christmas parties. Max wasn't a drinker. He wasn't. Hell, I was. Yeah. And everybody else, but not his family. They don't drink. I don't think any of them drink hardly. But anyway, uh, if Kemper wanted to kill Don Bowles for whatever for whatever reason he had, he had the kind of money he wouldn't go hire a fruitcake like Adamson, who I can tell you stories about. Well, I'm not going to right now. But <laughs> in, anyway, uh, Kemper would have just walked up to Bowles and decked him if it was that bad. And that's the kind of person Kemper was. And, and I didn't know him as well as Max, but I knew him, you know, somewhat. And they just... He, he had the kind of money, well, send to Italy and get the Italians to come do it or something, if that was right. the case. Max was his good friend. Yeah, why would he? That's the part, that, two things that I've always really struggled with as far as the state's theory. One being exactly what you just described. Why would a guy who was, according to Don Devereaux, worth about $400 million in the mid-70s, A, reach right. out to a bunch of North Central Avenue drunks like Adamson and Roberts, but B, someone who he almost had a father-son relationship with, why would he put Max Dunlap in this jackpot? It just doesn't make sense. No, the, and he'd had that relationship with Max since Max was a very young man. In 4-H, you know, with cattle and all that kind of stuff. Oh, my God. Yeah, it doesn't add up. And the other part of it is, again, we're talking about someone who, you know, in today's terms, is probably a billionaire a couple times over when you look at what $400 million was in 76. Oh, absolutely. When, when this all goes bad because Bulls survives and the note about who he was going to meet is on his typewriter, why would it have been such a struggle for them to try to scrape together $25,000 for John Adamson's legal defense, where somebody's bringing, I believe the amount was $5,800 to Max to yes. take to uh, help. I mean, that makes absolutely no sense. And the second part of that is if that money, like the police allege, was coming from Kemper Marley, why would Kemper Marley send a sack of cash to Neil Roberts, who he knew was under 24-hour surveillance, 
to then turn exactly. around and take it to Max, who he could just have given the money directly to with a lot less police eyes on it. Just it makes zero sense. And, and I that's my yeah. rant. But I, I just like I said, and that kind of money is chicken feed to those guys. Back right. then. Thank you so much. Appreciate All your right. time. Have a great day. You too. Bye bye.